Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History this month, July in 1943, saw a gigantic battle raging in the very west of Russia, the eastern part of Ukraine, around the town of Kursk, where a giant German attack was blunted and then pushed back by the Soviet forces. It is an enormous battle. It's often seen by the Soviets, one of the great decisive battles of the Second World War. But recent scholarship has changed our perception of that battle. It is now believed to be... Uh, fairly misunderstood and misrepresented. Ben Wheatley teaches at the Defence Studies Department at King's College, London, and he has done some extraordinary research, not just about the Battle of Kursk, but about the Battle of Prokhorovka, which is often seen as the kind of climax of the battle. It's regarded as the biggest tank battle in a single day of history. It's said by the Soviets to be the day that the German panzer force, the German armed forces, were catastrophically destroyed and potentially decided the fate of the entire war on the Eastern Front. Ben has decided this is not true. He's gone back to look at extraordinary detail at the records for individual vehicle maintenance and losses for the German army. And he's discovered that the battle has a very different story. Of course, it was important, but for the Soviets, it was a catastrophe as vast amounts of their armour was lost. And in return, the Germans didn't lose that much armour at all. So the legend of this battle was actually largely created by Soviet commanders who wanted to justify their losses to Joseph Stalin. And to be honest, who can blame them? This is a deep dive into one of the most extraordinary battles of the Second World War between the Germans and the Soviets on the Eastern Front. I wanted to celebrate and bring more attention to Ben's extraordinarily detailed research and demonstrate that it is still possible to reevaluate and change what we believe, rewrite the history, even of some of the most celebrated and remarked upon moments in our past. All this has caused a little bit of friction between Ben and the Russian embassy in the UK, proving that history still matters very much to people, particularly those people seeking to control the present. You can 
Go and learn much more about that history if you want by subscribing to History Hit TV. It's my digital history channel. You just go to historyhit.tv. You enter the code POD1, P-O-D-1. You get a month for free and they get a second month for just one pound, euro or dollar. If you do that, you can watch two months of History Hit. It's like the Netflix for history. Documentaries about everything. We got Second World War documentaries if you want to watch those. We got archaeology shows about the Stone Age, about the Neolithic period. If you want to go and watch those, we've got it all covered. So go and check out historyhit.tv. And in the meantime, though, please listen to this remarkable bit of research by Dr. Ben Whaley. Ben, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for welcoming me on. The whole world is talking about the work you're doing because let's talk about the, the, the events, the battle that you've researched first, and then we'll try and give everyone at home a sense of the titanic nature of your scholarship. I can't even pronounce the name of this battle, so tell us what was going on in July 1943. Actually, give us, give us the big background. We've got the Battle of Curse going on, haven't we, which is the last attempt that the Wehrmacht make to seize the strategic initiative and decisively win the war on the Eastern Front, right? I studied the Battle of Pokorovka, the pinnacle of the German attack in the south of Operation Citadel. So that's the German offensive to try and pinch out a bulge which has developed the previous spring following Stalingrad. So the Russians have had a tremendous victory at Stalingrad and then they've pushed to the west and they've tried to get to the Dnieper River but then Manstein, the command of Army Group South, does this tremendous success, a counter-attack quite against the odds and pushes the Soviets back to the Donetsk River. And in doing so, it creates this bulge in the front line around Kursk. And so the Germans in 1943, their position is one of total hopelessness, really, strategically. There's no way they can actually win the war in 1943. Hitler himself recognises that he cannot do any major strategic offences in 1943. He actually says, like, I can only do small forays in 1943. That's quoted. And on the 18th of February, he says, I can only do small forays. In 1943. He's recognising he's in a kind of hopeless situation. Of course he won't admit that, but that's his position. So the Germans, by the summer of 1943, they're recognising that the Soviets have tremendous superiority in numbers. So on the main Russian front, roughly six million Soviet troops on the Sursus from the Baltic Sea right down to the Sea of Azores. And the Germans have actually managed to build up their strength to three million, which, as you might recall, from the start of Operation Barbarossa in 1941, they committed 3.3 million troops to the offensive. And then after Stalingrad, they, you know, they suffered tremendous losses. Their strength drops, but they've actually managed in the quiet time in the spring to build up their strength again, 3.1 million troops. And then after the summer's fighting and the strategic situation changes around Europe, there's the Allies landing in Sicily in July, Normandy as well. There's suspect offensive will come, a second front, as they call it. So the actual Eastern Theatre will never get up to the summer strength again of 3.1 million again. So the Germans are really well to get their troops back up to strength, or, you know, a relatively decent strength in view of the Barbarossa strength. But then this quickly drops down to 2 million by the autumn. So the Germans have got 3.1 million, the strength rapidly drops after Kursk to 2.1 million. But the Germans do not see Operation Citadel, so that they're offensive at Kursk as a chance to uh, take back the initiative on the Eastern Front. They view it as a purely strategically defensive operation to try and forestall massive Soviet attacks, which they know will come because of this massive troop superiority that I mentioned. And in terms of tanks as well, they're very much aware that they're heavily outnumbered. So the idea is to pinch out the sailing from Operation Citadel. So they've got the Northern attack from 9th Army and the Southern attack um, Army Group South, which is 4th Panzer Army and also Army Detachment Kempf. So they plan to, do, to pinch out the Soviet sailing, which has developed from the spring, 
and therefore shorten the front line, which will release troops, so they can fight the strategic war which is now developing in Sicily, so they can move troops actually away from the Eastern Front, because already the feeling is that the East is a, pretty much a lost cause. And what I've been studying is the Battle of Prokhorovka, which is a pinnacle culmination of the German effort to try and break through the Soviet defences and encircle Kursk. But they come to an abrupt halt at Prokhorovka. If anyone's heard of Prokhorovka before, they've heard of a massive tank clash, and the Soviets suffered very heavily there. But the Germans were actually stopped at Prokhorovka, but mainly actually due to the strength of the Soviets' anti-tank strength. Because the massive battle happened on the 12th of July, which is very famous, and that's why there's a memorial at Prokhorovka, and it's deeply woven into the Russian understanding of the war. So there's a massive clash at Prokhorovka on the 12th of July. The Soviets suffered very heavily, but the Germans were already exhausted from the Citadel Offensive, which had began on the 5th of July, and were weak into the offensive when this clash happened, and their physical strength was exhausted, if not their material strength. Citadel, the Kursk battle, you've given us the numbers across the front. What were the numbers involved in this gigantic clash, particularly because it's become famous, one of the, if not the largest, battle of armoured vehicles, armoured fighting vehicles that the world had ever seen. So just give me a sense of the overall picture. The whole Kursk clash is made up of three offensives. There's got the German offensive from the 5th of July, which ran through to the 16th of July when Hitler called a halt to it. He called a halt to it on the 13th of July, but in the south they continued it to the 16th to try and you know, make small gains. And then it's also during the German offensive, the Soviets were making a strategic decision to be on the defensive. They wanted to absorb the German attack, rapidly roll over the Germans, who they presumed would be heavily weakened by grinding through their numerous defences which they'd built up, massive defensive, you know, anti-tank ditches, massive minefields, dug in tanks, they prepared along those lines. Then their plan was to go over to the offensive on the 12th of July in the north against 9th Army. They planned to attack behind the German attack pincer and roll over 2nd Panzer Army and take Orel, and they were very successful in doing that. They took heavy casualties there as well, but they forced the Germans back to Hagen Line by the 18th of August. And also, they planned to have another offensive in the south, which they planned to take Kharkov, the fourth largest city in Ukraine at the time, and then roll, hopefully again, onto Dnieper and roll back the Germans. They actually hoped to defeat Army Group South. The Battle of Kursk, as I mentioned, is regarded as the largest battle in military history, so all military history. Four million troops involved on both sides, so it's quite humongous. There's 69,000 cannon, 13,000 tanks, and 12,000 aircraft. So it's actually a humongous battle. It brings to instantly... How can this not be a strategically important offensive? Surely with those sort of numbers it could be, but because the Germans were already heavily weakened, you know, not taking Moscow in Barbarossa and Stalingrad, the Germans already had no chance of a victory. Obviously these battles still had to be won by the Soviets, and they did so. A great cost in the number of lives, really. So 50 days, roughly, the Battle of Kerr. So it's the 5th of July to the 23rd of August. It's estimated that Soviets lost 1.6 million troops in that time, in those 50 days and the Germans lost 170,000. So that's, again, to put that into context, that combined number of German and Soviet deaths is greater than the entire killed and wounded for the USA and Great Britain during the entire Second World War. So you've got within 50 days on the Eastern Front, the number of deaths is greater than British and an American contribution in lost lives during the Second World War. So that puts the magnitude of the Eastern Front quite clearly into perspective, really. I've been studying the pinnacle of the German push in the south, which was this clash at Okorovka.
How has that battle traditionally been told, the story of that battle? It started off General Rotmistroff, who was the commander of the 5th Guards Tank Army. There's mythology why he gave these figures. He said that the Germans lost 400 tanks at Prokhorovka in this massive clash where the Germans were attacking at the same time as the Russians and the German forces consisted of the 2nd SS Panzer Corps. These are all the classic SS names you know, for divisions like the Lipschendata SS Panzergut Grenadier Division, the Das Reich Panzer Grenadier Division and Totenkopf Panzer Grenadier Division. They contribute to the 2nd SS Panzer Corps. The Russian view was that the SS Panzer Corps was basically crushed because they lost 400 tanks. But in actual fact, the SS Panzer Corps wouldn't have had that many tanks to begin the offensive with, so you can see clearly that those losses could not have occurred. That's Rotmistroff's view, but I think traditionally the Soviet view is that 300 German tanks were lost, so that's 100 less than Rotmistroff gave in his memoirs. The general belief is that the Soviets came terribly well to bring up this 5th Guards tank army from the steppe, their strategic reserve. The Germans hadn't picked up this large formation arriving, so they expected a counterattack on the 12th, but nothing like what actually occurred. It was a large, massively large clash. The Germans were actually hadn't started to attack yet on the 12th. They were recovering from their large exertions the previous day, taking the area, which is very close to Prokhorovka, just two kilometres south. They were not going to planning to attack until later in the day. So when the Soviet 5th Guards tank army did attack on the day of the 12th, they were taking a defensive posture. So we have the actual events is that the Soviets were launched a planned attack on the 12th of July against the German forces who were not expecting it. They had to rapidly take to the defensive, hold their positions. And this is where the scholarship comes in, because what did you decide to do? To say it's in minute detail is another statement. What did you do to try and get an accurate picture of actually what happened in this Titanic clash? Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Going back three years, I was asked by the defense of King's College London to produce an operational study of Kursk. I knew all the biology of the battle and you know, thought it would be a good fun thing for the soldiers to engage in. So I looked into it. I've heard about this notorious anti-tank ditch 
which plays a central part of the battle. Recent scholarship says that, clearly the correct scholarship, that a large part of attacking Soviet forces accidentally tumbled into their own tank ditch. The maximum of about 60 tanks could have done this, really, you know, depending on where all the brigades attacked on the day. So I thought, surely, there must be photographic evidence of anti-tank ditch. So first of all, I used Google Maps and looked at the area, and it seemed quite clear where the anti-tank ditch could be. There was some very useful maps which helped to do so, but remarkably, quite a few publications do not list the anti-tank ditch in the correct location. So I thought, well, perhaps there's a photo reconnaissance of the area, so I looked for Luftwaffe reconnaissance pictures. Again, I did a Google search and some pictures of the area appeared and I applied to the website holder where you managed to get these pictures from. He said the National Archives in America. So I delved deeper into their archives and lo and behold, I found pictures of the area which had not been published in any detail. They were actually published in 2015 by an American historian called Christopher Lawrence in 2015, but he didn't analyse the pictures at all. He? But I employed a professional photographer to get the very best pictures possible. When you do so, you can actually see individual tanks on the battlefield. You know, this hasn't been seen before, as in, in any detail. And quickly, all the key areas of the battle sprang up. There's this Hill 252.2, which is very famous. And I'm sure you've heard of Joachim Piper. He commanded the Lipschendarter's Armoured Panzergrenadier Battalion. This is the one with the half-tracks, because each Panzergrenadier division would have one battalion which was equipped with half-tracks. So the whole battalion travelled in half-tracks. All the other Panzergrenadier battalions were travelled in just trucks, but this was like the one which went up front with the tanks. On the night of the 11th, the previous day, they took over Hill 252.2 from the Soviet 7th Army, and then they took position on top of this hill. These were the guys who faced the onslaught of the Soviet offensive the next day, and that was by the 29th Soviet Tank Corps. And there's the 32nd Tank Brigade and the 31st Tank Brigade. They launched an attack over the top of the hill, against this German battalion, which is overwhelmed, then basically just takes cover to try and fight for its life. And then the Soviet tankers, the chief mission is to engage um, German tanks. They bypass these troops and go over the hill and towards this anti-tank ditch, which lies a kilometre further on. The 5th Guards Tank Army did not expect to find the anti-tank ditch because they'd only just arrived into the area. As I said previously, they were from the Steppe Reserve. They hadn't had time to do a proper reconnaissance of the area because they've just come in to go onto the offensive. For some reason, they did not realise that this was the third line of the massive Soviet cursed defences. And so the forward elements unwittingly went straight into the ditch. And the Germans were situated, the main panzer regiment was situated behind the anti-tank ditch, and this made it easy for the Germans to pick off the Soviets. The Soviets had stopped in front of the ditch, and they didn't know what to do, so they made easy targets for the Germans. That happened in the core centre, and I found images of the uh, tank ditch, which right near the road of the main Pokrovka, and there's a railway line as well, Pokrovka to Belgorod, main road and railway line. So, and there was nowhere to cross for these tanks. On the images, it looks completely blackened, like with oil and explosions near the ditch. The ditch extends further on, away from the road. I and mean, there is German testimony which says that these tanks smashed into each other and, you know, piled into each other. So that sort of ties in, really, with the images. And then further away, you can see individual tanks, which are in the ditch as well. Obviously, the battle was less intense, but they're still visible. The German losses, they were not very significant at all. But again, going right back to what we were saying previously, how said that the Germans suffered heavily in terms of tanks. But actually, they lost five tanks on the day. You know, it goes against what was being said. Give me a sense of how do we know exactly about German vehicle losses? Because that's the thing that you've done that's just so remarkable. 
There's the 4th Panzer Army, which is the controlling army for SS Panzer Corps, so kept meticulous records of inventories. I mean, all German armies would have done this, but it seems that this is the only Panzer Army's records which have survived in, in real detail, which still contain the monthly chassis numbers of each individual tank. So we have the base date for the 1st of July, so it's just four or five days before the start of the German offensive citadel. So that's your base date of what each individual tank number was around the time. So you can then track these tanks later in subsequent chassis number reports. So that's one of the ways of doing it. And there's also total loss reports. And these were given by the divisional and corps engineers who were the people who wrote off German tanks. So they were the people who gave it the final say-so. And there's these reports of total loss reports, and they give chassis numbers as well, so you can mark those off with the inventories. And then there's 10-day status reports. So every 10 days, the Germans had to fill out what happened in the last 10 days and what their strength currently was, and how many tanks were meant to be in a unit, how many were under short-term repair, so that's repair with the troops, and then how many were in longer-term repair at army level, or even further, army group level, where was these forward repair facilities like large factories. So these are charted out in these 10-day status reports and they also give losses. So, so they had two categories of losses. There's 3A losses which they thought could be repaired but they had to be sent all the way back to Germany, major factory repair, so that the forward units regarded them as a loss. And then secondly there's these 3B total losses which was, as it says, as you might imagine, so these are losses, you know, tanks have been destroyed, blown up, you know, no hope of repair at all. So you've got these two forms of losses. 10-day status reports also give new tanks which have arrived in those last 10 days. And then further to that, there's also monthly reports which divisions gave, which they also listed, you know, as monks, troop strength. They listed how many operational tanks there were in the divisions and typically how many tanks were under medium-term repair every three weeks, you know, expected to return within three weeks. So those are the major types of reports I studied. The key ones was this chassis numbers report, because then you could track them after this massive battle at Pokorovka and how they would follow them later on. There's a big black hole in the archives all the way up to October, but then they pick up again. That's chiefly because for the SS units, because they left the 4th Panzer Army's control after the battle, but then they came back in October, some of the units. Again, that's, you pick up the, these inventories, you can see, oh yes, this tank was here in the beginning of July, and it, it's gone through Pokorovka and it's still around in October. So October was the most important chassis number reports that I had. There's 386 fighting vehicles with the two SS divisions that took part in Prokhorovka, so that's Libschen Data and Das Reich. And then on the 1st of November, 218, which was still around on Eastern Front. You know, it's over half have survived, which goes against historical narrative of the battle where it was a basically wipeout. On the 1st of December, there's still 192 ex-Prokhorovka vehicles still on the Eastern Front, that's four and a half months later. By tracking individual tanks, you can get a true narrative. You talk about confirming the narrative. What is it you think you can really teach us about just when and where you know, the disastrous damage was done to the German armoured units on the Eastern Front if it wasn't actually on the couple of days in Pokhorovka? The Lipschendart, which faced the main brunt of the offensive, had 78 tanks available in the inventory the day prior to Prokhorovka battle, and 74 tanks after the battle. And actually operationally, so they started the offensive with 79 tanks. The day before Prokhorovka they had 47 Panzer IVs, which were the workhorse of the German army. And then on the 18th after Citadel they had 55. So actually the strength had gone up. It wasn't actually a death knell for the Panzer forces because they were able to carry on. 
So after Citadel, when the Germans started to face these massive Soviet offensives, which they knew were going to come, the operational strength actually started to eat away, started to corrode, because the Germans didn't have time to do the repairs necessary to keep these tanks in operation. The tanks were still in the inventories. They didn't have the time or the spare parts to get these tanks back into action. And there was a big battle of attrition of the tanks between the Soviets and the Germans. The Soviets, again, were suffering heavily, but the Germans have it suffering less than total losses, but their operational strength was eroding. So that carries on all the way through some, for any period you care to mention pretty much afterwards, right through to the spring of 1944. There's, there's a fair number of tanks in the inventory, but their actual operational numbers are so low. The situation looks quite ridiculous for the Germans, really. Two quick questions. One is I read in your research that a big reason for losses of tanks is if you're retreating, if a tank gets bogged down or loses a track, it could be quite a minor bit of damage, but you have to abandon it. You can't recover it. So the nature of going backwards is very attritional to tank numbers, is it? It was Karl Heinz Friesler who did the major research for Okorovka itself, you know, and discovered the true story of events, really. And Roman Topol has also done superb work in that area. The last two papers I've written are confirming a, a narrative which has already been proved correct, but you need to confirm it in so many other ways, which is a probably unique to Prokhorovka. I mean, looking at the Lipschen data, again, when they returned to the Eastern Front, the Soviets conducted a massive offensive in late December, from the 24th of December. So the main effort of that went through to the 10th of January. And the Lipschen data lost 123 armoured fighting vehicles. And the two categories I described for losses in that small period. So that shows how massive losses they were experiencing later in 43, but that would be chiefly down to the difficulties of withdrawing tanks. They needed to recover them. There wasn't recovery vehicles. So you have a large number of tanks waiting repair. You just have to abandon them basically. And that's what they were forced to do. Plus the train at the time wasn't not good for Panzer operations, winter time, wooded area as well. So that's a defense, the Germans on a defensive, 123 tanks. You compare that with the Liebschen data losses during Citadel. So that's 12 to 13 days. Similar time frame. The Lipschen data only lost 18 armoured fighting vehicles through the whole of Operation Citadel. So you can see the difference between offensive and defensive action. So it would have been damages during Citadel which they could recover. They controlled the battlefield after the battle each time. And even at Prokhorovka, the Germans controlled the actual battlefield, even though the number of damaged tanks wasn't that severe. So you can see the difference between offensive and defensive action and the opportunities it gave the Germans to retrieve tanks and or, or not vice versa. So your research confirms, together with the research course of your colleagues, that if you're looking for the cause or the locus of the astonishing... I mean, there were lots of decisive reverses for the Germany on the Eastern Front in the Second World War, but of course, probably the most important outside Moscow in '41. But if you're looking for this terrible, terrible reverse that the Germans suffer in '43, we need to think much more widely than just... Kursk Operation Citadel. Yeah, basically the losses sustained by the Germans during Kursk were not severe at all. They were manageable for the Germans. It's a general attritional whittling away at strength. Thank you very much, Ben. Of course, we'll, I will tweet where people can find your research as well when they've listened to podcasts. Thank you very much, Ben Wheatley. Th thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Dan. I feel the happy history on our shoulders. 
Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't want to subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.